may go to the uh, fellowship hall with the Friesens for Children's Chapel. And hopefully you brought a Bible with you. Uh, we'll be looking at Amos chapter 3, the last part of chapter 3, and the first part of chapter 4. We'll start in verse 12. Uh, we're going through the book of Amos, right, this summer. Um, which, for some of us, has been um, a difficult, perhaps unpleasant experience. For the rest of us, um, I guess maybe we just haven't been paying attention close enough. <laughs> um, seriously, though, if, uh, if it doesn't hurt, it's probably not the gospel, right? Uh, it really is time for serious self-reflection on certain issues that, um, that our culture actually happens to have in common with Amos's culture. Um, when I tell my friends that don't go to our church uh, why we're going through the book of Amos, because um, they ask me, like, why on earth would you go through the book of Amos? Uh, partly, I say, uh, it's because I like to switch back and forth between a New Testament book and an Old Testament book, and partly because I've already studied this book, and it's a really busy season, and it's just easier to kind of uh, build on the study that I've already done in some ways. Ultimately, though, we're going through the book of Amos because um, we're mostly affluent religious suburbanites living in a consumer society. It's just who we are. Uh, this book is perfect for people like us, even though uh, we'd probably rather not think so. Uh, this morning's text in particular is a doozy. Um, I know when we started this series, uh, Cheryl Bowden says she was actually looking forward to hearing about the cows of Bashan. Um, not quite sure what she was thinking. <laughs> she wanted to hear about that, so <clears throat> this one's for you, Cheryl. <laughs> this one's for all of us. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, open our eyes so that we may perceive wonderful things from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amos three, twelve. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring, that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Your tithes every three days. 
offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, there are basically two main interrelated problems with the people here that Amos is addressing. They're um, self-indulgence and false piety. Uh, First, the Israelites were given to self-indulgence. Their lives were centered around luxury and creature comforts. Uh, Prominent Israelites had, apparently, winter houses and summer houses, houses that were filled with ivory furniture, which was not uh, indigenous to Israel. They got it because they were... uh, they were a major trade route. They were wealthy, and uh, they had access to ivory. Um, great houses, or many houses, the text says. Right? Women in particular are singled out, though, of course, these problems are not limited to women. Um, cows of Bashan. Right? Bashan was a place of, uh, of rich pasture for cattle where the, the cows were well-fed. They were fat. They were... Uh, sleek, glossy coats. They were loving life, right? And Amos gives us a picture of Israelite women who lays about in comfort. They're demanding excessive pleasures, um, right? Drink, uh, not, not the basic necessities of life. Bring us a drink uh, from their husbands. And literally the text uh, ironically says lords. The, the women say to their lords, bring us a drink. Um, and you pick up the sense of entitlement to a... a a life of ease, that they use their husbands to maintain a certain level of lifestyle. And it's so bad that Amos says that they oppress the poor. They crush the needy in order to uh, enjoy their extravagance. It's almost certain that this oppression was not direct, uh, but that they basically got whatever they wanted and didn't really care how uh, their self-indulgence affected other people. They didn't care that their husbands were participating in the corrupt legal system that favored the rich or that they were illegally pressing the poor into slavery, which benefited them. They didn't care how they got the benefits of wealth. They just wanted to enjoy them. They were turned inward upon themselves. They were pursuing their own pleasure at the neglect or even the oppression of the needy. And the Bible calls this idolatry. which is to say it's a problem of the heart, it's a worship problem. The Israelites had elevated to the level of divinity their own comfort, pursuing that above all else. The Bible says that when we do this, we begin to identify with our idols. Our identity is found in the things that we worship. So when we worship false gods, we lose ourselves. We become distorted, uh, bent versions of ourselves fashioned after the likeness of the idols that we worship. Psalm 115 says this. Um, It's contrasting those who follow the one true God with those who follow after idols. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them, these idols, become like them. So do all who trust in them. O oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. But Israel 
had trusted in their own prosperity and they'd loved their own luxury. They'd given themselves to the mindless worship of a standard of living. So when God judged them in his wrath against their sin, he's going to send the Assyrians in and wipe them out. All that would be left would be a few fragments of comfortable furniture. Uh, Alec Motyer, a commentator, says, What sort of people are represented by the rescued evidence of parts of beds and couches? Imagine that these are the vestiges of the people of God. Like a, a shepherd, when he finds a lion that's snatched one of his sheep, he rescues little bits of it. Yep, that was my sheep. There were its legs, part of an ear. Right? Um, so the people of God who will be rescued from God's wrath are recognizable by parts of beds and corners of couches. What sort of people are symbolized by a chaise lounge and a king-size bed? Right? It symbolizes us. Commentator Gordon Ketty has a good answer to that question. He says, we must not think of the cows of Bashan as out-and-out, openly, grossly wicked people. <laughs> they were normal people, albeit people with wealth and position in society. They were, to be sure, people on the make, the movers and shakers in society, the hangers-on, the social climbers, and the entrepreneurs, that is to say, the successful people who have made something of their lives. They were the kind of people that most people want to be if only they could have the opportunity. And they go to church. This is the bane of church life in the cow of Bashan culture of the consumer society of the West. Outward form, coin in the plate, a barely whispered hymn. What is the preacher on about today? Gloves on during the benediction, click of handbags. Nice to see you, Mrs. Jones must hurry by. This brings us to the second main problem Amos is addressing, that the self-indulgent Israelites were also very religious people, right? But their religion was uh, unacceptable. You may remember that the the northern kingdom of Israel, when they divided from the southern kingdom, they had set up alternate worship sites for themselves so that they wouldn't have to go down to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah to worship. And these other locations that they had set up were forbidden by God, and they had erected not only uh, temples or altars there, but gone back to the good old golden calf that was meant to represent Yahweh. Uh, God had clearly revealed himself to his people. He had given them his law. He told them how and where to worship him, and they were violating all of it. They had transformed the revealed religion of God's people into a uh, truly man-made religion. They were doing what they wanted to do, with regard to worship, and they organized not only their society, but their religion around self. If they had any twinge of guilt in their consciences about their idolatrous uh, self-indulgence, they washed that away by the performance of their idolatrous worship. In fact, their, their view of themselves and their view of God had become so distorted that they probably thought that their prosperity and their luxury was a sign of God's favor to them, right? Surely God is blessing us. Surely he's on our side. He's not against us. Surely he approves of who we are and what we do in our worship, since obviously our standard of living is clear evidence of his love for us, right? We must be okay with God because our lives are going so well. Um, But Jesus warns us not to think that way. In fact, 
very frequently in the Bible, um, we see that wealth and comfort can hinder an honest assessment of our relationship with God. Wealth and comfort can hinder an honest assessment of our relationship with God. It's so easy to believe that a life of ease is proof of God's favor, but it's absolutely not the case. It's not the case. Nor, on a side note, is uh, a life of pain evidence of God's displeasure toward you. We wish that we could justify the self-indulgence that wealth brings by saying, this is just evidence that God loves me. Clearly, he wants me to enjoy these things. God himself wants me to enjoy these things. That's why he's given them to me, right? It's true that he's made you to enjoy this world, but he has certainly not made you to give yourself to the idol of material pleasures, nor to, the, uh, to enjoy excesses while you step over those who are in need. Psalm 73, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they're not in trouble as others are, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind, therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And the wicked are even worse when they're always at ease, increasing in riches, and when they think they've got God's approval because they're religious people. God calls that out through Amos. And he gives um, sort of a bizarro call to worship here in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. Come to Bethel, to this false worship site that you've created, and transgress. Not come and worship. Come and transgress. To Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. This is obviously overboard. You didn't have to bring sacrifices every morning or tithes every, every three days. He's saying, go to the furthest extent possible. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. Um, A sacrifice of thanksgiving was something meant to be burnt. And when you burn things, you never burned leavened things, right? So they didn't know how to worship. Um, Come and burn that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. Make it known how generous you are. For so you love to do, O people of Israel. They were, they were blind to justice and mercy. They'd convinced themselves that their luxury was evidence of God's blessing when in reality it was evidence of their own crimes. They thought their religious practices were pleasing to God, but in reality they were at enmity with God and they were deserving his judgment. God was going to tear down their false altars. He was going to tear the horns off their altars, make, their, make them know your altars are ineffective. They are powerless to help you. And he was going to give the people over to exile and death. Chapter 4, verse 2 says, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And that's actually a 
pretty literal description of what the Assyrians did. I think they found some stone with a picture on it. Once the Assyrians had conquered a people, they're leading a string of captives away with hooks put through their lips or their noses. Right? They're going to go out through the breaches, each one of you straight ahead. The, the walls around the city will be so destroyed, it doesn't matter which way you're facing, you can walk straight and go through the wall. Right? God is holy, and his holiness revolts against self-indulgence. His holiness revolts against the abuse of others, especially the poor. Psalm 68, verse 5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. He has a special place in his heart for the poor and needy. And when the wealthy live in excess at their neglect or even at their expense, his wrath burns hot. In Leviticus chapter 26, God says, If you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. Um, Self-indulgence is... God doesn't like it. It's completely antithetical to revealed religion. It stands opposed to God's holiness, to his character, to God's very being as the triune God of self-giving. So God swears by his holiness. He commits his whole nature to the complete reversal and destruction of that way of life. Douglas Stewart says, A city of pleasure seekers will see its wealth stolen, its comforts ruined, its cult annihilated, and its people captured, killed, and exiled. Heavy words. Why is God even telling Israel this? Why even send a prophet to proclaim this message of judgment? If he's just had it with them and he just wants to wipe them out, why telegraph it? Why tell him uh, what, what he's planning at all? Why not just send the Assyrians in and be done with it? End of story. It's got to be because God has compassion even on sinners like the Israelites. Even on them, right? It has to be that he's offering a warning to them to give them another chance to wake up and repent. Gordon Ketty says, God does not send prophets like Amos to depress us and cast us down into despair with their pronouncements of wrath to come. God's purpose is primarily a purpose of grace. He wishes to shake us by the blasts of his word so that we might recognize him for who he is, the God who maintains love to thousands but who does not leave the guilty unpunished. If he were only the God who did not leave the guilty unpunished, then the Bible wouldn't have gotten past Genesis chapter 3. But God is also the God who loves and has mercy on a thousand generations of really messed up people like the Israelites and like us, like you and me. So he sent his son, Jesus, to give up the wealth of heaven itself to show that true love empties itself for the sake of others. Not only did Jesus pay for all of our sins with his precious blood, but Jesus showed us what God wants to see from our own lives, in our own lives. 
He showed us true religion, which his half-brother James captured quite nicely. We read it in our New Testament reading. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So Jesus came to a world full of real and spiritual widows and orphans. And he gave his life to provide eternity and security for us. And when salvation is really at work in your life, by the grace of God, you'll begin to act more like Jesus. You'll care for the poor. Your religion, your service to God, your worship will start to look like acts of justice and mercy. Your standard of living will fall so that others might rise. Rather than just automatically spending all of your money on yourself, assuming that God is also in the business of promoting your self-indulgence, <laughs> you'll ask God what he wants you to do with your money, and you'll probably give a bunch of it away to those who are in need or to the church. Right? Let me read a little bit from Isaiah 58. If you have a Bible there, um, you can turn there. It's a, it's a remarkable passage. Isaiah 58. Verses 1 through 11. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, the religious service of worship that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Beautiful picture that we should all strive toward. A couple of weeks ago, a homeless couple came into the church um, I don't know. They, they said they were married. Um, who knows? Uh, 
They came in after the worship service. Martine and Teliza were their names. They came and asked me for financial assistance to um, help pay for their rent. They've been living in a hotel in the Hollywood district on the other side of Portland. And um, the best that I could do at the time was give them a couple of max passes, help them get around for a week, right? Now, we're in the process of training deacon nominees to be able to engage in situations like that better than I can and make it so that I can uh, do my job more freely on Sunday mornings. Nevertheless, I distinctly remember feeling very inconvenienced, very inconvenienced that my duties revolving around our time of worship were being so interrupted by the poor and needy. It seemed to violate all the orderliness of my good plans. Tell me this, is there a better time to help the poor than during worship? Is there a better time than worship to undo the straps of the yoke and break every yoke? Is there a better time than worship to push back against the curse that holds people in poverty, to give to those who have nothing, to pour ourselves out, to share our bread with the hungry? Our lives and our religion are so often just about ourselves. True worship is about thanking the God who gave himself for us and following him by giving ourselves for others. So giving is a part of worship. It's not just something that we have to do during the service in order to pay the bills. It's fully integrated into our liturgy, which is God-centered. We hear about the gospel and we respond in thanksgiving, in giving. And this giving enables us as a church to do ministry. It includes um, supporting those who have need. And in connecting with our um, worship on the the first Sunday of each month, we take a special offering. We participate in practical ways to help the poor. We do the hope kits. We pack the the backpacks, the packed with love. We want to teach our children at an early age that everything that we have comes to us by God's grace, his self-sacrificial grace. Everything we have belongs to him, and so we enjoy, we delight in giving and serving in ways that please him. We teach our kids that the first thing you do with your money is you give. And then we ask God how we should spend the rest of it. We teach them treat the poor like real people and not just step over them on the streets because God didn't just step over us on his way somewhere else, right? He sent his son to live and die for us, to save us and to restore us. He bore our burdens, burdens of oppression, burdens that were self-inflicted. He bore our burdens, and so we want to bear the burdens of others to the extent that we actually share them that we actually feel the burden. And we want our kids to grow up knowing how to recognize their own tendencies towards self-indulgence in their hearts, right? To confess those sins and to repent of them. And in order to teach them that, we need to confess our sins and repent of them, right? This isn't just a one-time deal that you do at the beginning of the Christian life. It's a process. You're an American. 
you will probably always be confessing your self-indulgence to God, your neglect of the poor, your empty worship. But you're also a redeemed child of God. By his free grace through Jesus Christ, you're forgiven all your sins. You're restored to blessed communion with him and all the riches of heaven's kingdom are yours to share. Amen. Let's pray. Father, the gospel is truly good news to people like us who are morally and spiritually bankrupt. We are the poor, we are the orphan and the widow, and you did not leave us in our affliction, in our destitution, but you joined us here in order to exalt us. And this is beyond our comprehension, but we know that you do it because you love us. And so we want to open our hearts to receive your love, but not that we would just receive it and remain unchanged, but that your love would truly transform us to be the kind of people who no longer neglect the poor, who certainly don't deliberately oppress the poor. We pray that you would reveal to us the places where we have done these things. Help us to confess and turn away from those times those sins in our hearts and help us to follow after Jesus. Help us, show us all the places where we can truly engage with people better, where we can serve people better, where we can give more. Would you help us to become a people who give of ourselves as freely as you gave of yourself? And we do think that this would take a miracle, so we pray for your Holy Spirit to do this work in our hearts by your word. We pray that you would uh, join our fellowship uh, and compel us to be a fellowship, not just for ourselves, but for others in this world, so that all may taste and see that you are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.